Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 34 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good morning. So today we have a wonderful guest, Carolyn Taylor. Now, I've had the opportunity to work with Carolyn on a couple of occasions, and she is really, truly one of the world's foremost experts on the whole topic of culture and uh, making culture change. She's um, the chairman and or chairperson of a consultancy called Walking the Talk. She's written a book by the same name. Over the past 30 years, Carolyn's run workshops with over 200,000 leaders, worked alongside 200 culture change journeys, consulted on 15 mergers and acquisitions, coached 60 CEOs, and worked in 35 countries. She's known for facilitating events, and I can swear by this because I've been with her on some of these, with teams that are insightful, profound, fun, and provocative. In 2005, she wrote what is probably one of the definitive guides on culture change called Walking the Talk. And most recently, she's written a new book called Accountability. Now, Carolyn, maybe tell us a little bit about the new book, in particular, the journey that got you to this book on accountability and why now? I think the now answer was that it became particularly relevant with the whole lockdown pandemic situation where people who were maybe struggling with really how to do accountability well, but struggled potentially even more when they weren't able to look over people's shoulders. So that gave a whole nother angle, although I had started writing it before the pandemic. The bigger reason was that finding that most leaders were wanting their people to perform more, whether that was financially perform more or you know, be more urgent and quick in what they were delivering and so on. And many, many people feeling that they were, had goals imposed on them that they weren't, didn't really think were doable. And so it felt like somehow accountability had become somewhat old school, had got a bad name for itself. And I wanted to do something about that. Mm. Well, I love that you start part of the book and part of the description of the book with this phrase, you can count on me. And uh, I love that idea that you bring in of that idea, you can count on me and the difference between a promise and intention. And I particularly liked the part where you say when a partner calls and says, I'm going to be home for dinner at 630, you're checking in. Is that a promise or is that an intention? Talk a little bit about that idea. You can count on me. Well, you can count on me and you know, the other question, can I count on you, has been the shorthand I've used for, and of course, it's a play on the words accountability, works well in English, doesn't work so well in other languages, but it's a, a great sort of shorthand for that interaction that happens between two people, because in my view, you can only be accountable and held to account. It's a particular relationship, and it's the quality of that relationship that really determines whether the outcome will happen. And that's really what the book is about, that it's, that it's having clear conversations, like you said, about is this a promise or an intention? I, you know, am I going to put the spaghetti on or am I going to you know, wait and, you know, because then you'll in fact arrive back 30 minutes later because that was fine. It was only an intention and, and that um, my partner and I both do that both ways. We used to when we used to be out of work. <laughs> so that idea has been very powerful. Promise versus intention, discovering that most Leaders assume that the goals are a promise. Many people, when asked, you know, what's the likelihood you think that this goal is going to be achieved, will say maybe 60, 70%, which then maybe leads it into the intention realm. And then one goes, okay, the next question, of course, is what would it take to make it a promise? So it, it's a good conversation starter. Well, you also bring up the idea of accountability and empowerment. And that's funny because sometimes when people talk about those, they sort of see them as, you know, sort of like if I'm empowering you, mm, what does that really mean with regards to this idea of accountability? So maybe, you know, explain, you know, that you brought that up in the book as well. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. 
And I think that goes to why accountability got a bad name. And now you have everything from, you know, remote working to agile teams and, and you know, the whole concept that, in fact, people you know, don't need supervision in that sense. So therefore, the whole role of what accountability is has to change. But I, I, I still believe that, that there needs to be some very clear conversations at the front end of what I'll call an accountability contract between two people, which says, what is it? What am I asking of you? What am I asking of this team? What am I asking of this project? And having got that really, really clear and, and both parties feeling, and one in particular feeling, I can say, I can give you my word, this is a promise. Then, of course, you allow real empowerment because then everything else is then clear within that boundary. Without any sort of discussion like that, I think there's a risk yeah. that agility becomes abdication actually in chaos yeah so that's been one of the things to explore in this whole process i think about what really is empowerment well it also leads to an interesting question about the quality of the dialogue that you and i are having <laughs> and, and and can i have the tough conversation where i sort of say no oh, it's my boss asking me <laughs> to do something <laughs> where's that yeah. line between sort of uh yeah. saying yes because i feel obliged to say it um, and a true promise that comes from a, a commitment I'm making to you that's sort of freely given in a sense. Yeah. Um, but that fine line between you're asking me to do something, therefore I have to do it, versus actually I'm making a commitment to you that I'll do it. But just imagine, I mean, think how many times people you feel even in, you know, in your, anyone who's listening to this, where somebody actually really eyeballs you even on Zoom and says, you know, you absolutely count on, you can count on me for this, you know, and how, what a different feeling that would be in terms of the confidence you then have someone will mm. deliver. And that doesn't happen. That kind of commitment doesn't tend to happen. And I think it doesn't tend to happen because people don't have those conversations. People say yes for a whole lot of reasons. They say yes to please you. They say yes because they want to look, oh, I can do anything. Yes, of course, I can say yes. Or they say yes to avoid conflict because they're fairly sure no one will follow up anyway so yes is actually the easier thing to say having the real conversation is quite different so what was fascinating is going into a topic of accountability and discovering that actually at its purest form it is all about a really quality conversation between two mm. people and when you have the courage to have that up front mm the likelihood that it then get, that gets delivered on the way through because when i really give you my word when i feel like it was a promise it changes what I do when things get difficult. Yeah. Does that make sense? You know, because yeah. it, because yeah. when something gets difficult, instead of going, well, it was a stupid goal anyway, and I never thought I was going to be able to do it, you know, there's a much stronger thing which says, well, actually, I, I did give you my word. I mean, I had one just the other day when you know, a colleague of mine, you know, we, we're, we, of course, we play with this language in, our, in my organization, Walking the Talk now, and we, we were playing around with that language of, you know, she's going, so can I count on you to check this, you know, because I've got to do something with it, plant tomorrow. I, you know, went out for the evening, came back really tired, you know, and I, and I remember there was a moment when I was about to go to bed where going, I promised Liz I would do this. And, and something changes inside of you where you go, okay, I have to get out of bed and do this now because I gave her my word. If she hadn't nailed me on that, you know, had that conversation, for sure I wouldn't have done it. So that's a small example, but of course it plays, you know, right up to, annual goals to you know safety standards to anything you want to apply it to well you know carolyn i'm sure in your experience as in ours most cultures are pretty dysfunctional would you agree yeah yes and I, and the, to me the two dimensions that that stand out one is the uh, the idea of caring how much caring is there in the culture and then the idea of accountability and often the two are somewhat uh, out of balance they're very caring oriented cultures that have no accountability really. And that's, I think that was Bill George's experience when he came to Medtronic. So people were really nice to each other, but uh, nobody kept their promises and things just didn't get done. Or you have the more common scenario of this whole emphasis on high performance and uh, delivering the numbers and so forth. So it's, it's all about the numbers and accountability, but really no caring behind it. And that burns people out and, and the quality of results are not that great. So the question to me always is, how do you have both of these, not in diluted forms, but how you have a deep level of caring along with a high level of, of accountability? So how do you uh, manage that, what seems like a polarity, that people go on one side or the other? Mm. Well, I, I, I think 
I think you'll find that that, that is, I never thought of it in exactly the way you're describing it there. And I think that's actually what the book has been about. What my thinking has been about is that when you have an adult to adult conversation, I mean, always, I, I, in the book, I call them the asker and the giver. Right? There's one person who wants something and there's someone else who's giving. And that applies to boss subordinate, applies to peers, it applies to a supplier and customer, it applies to friends, you know, any way you want to do it. The asker always wants more. I mean, almost by definition, you know, I want more, more volume, less time, less cost, etc. I mean, that's kind of almost normal. And the giver has always got the doubts because they've got all these other things that are coming at them and can I do it? So if you go into a conversation recognizing that there's going to be that natural tension, and in a way there should be that natural tension, I mean, that's kind of right and proper that the asker, you know, can ask for what a bit more, then I think it changes the dynamic about we recognize there is a tension. How do we have the conversation in a caring way? It's not actually in the asker's interest to have a, a yes given and then it not delivered. So, so that's one of the big, the big errors I think people make is if I just push, push, push and tell, 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 people will say yes. And then, of course, they blame the people when it doesn't get delivered. What I'm proposing is there are two roles, both have a responsibility here. Both, as you, in your words, both have responsibility to do this in a caring way and an adult conversation and listen to what the doubts are. And the more you listen and hear what the doubts of the giver are, the more you can then go, okay, so what would it take, Timothy, your word, to change this from a promise, from an intention into a promise? And then what comes out, of course, are all the risks well, I think this won't happen. I'm worried this person won't deliver for me. I've got five other things on my plate, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you can go into, well, let's have a look at this. How can we resolve this? Or, you know, so at least you've then got it all on the table. And I think that's how you can be caring and accountable at the same time. I mean, I mean there are many other ways, but that would be one simple answer. So I think it sounds like you're saying you start with deep listening and understand what's really going on below the surface and listen for the emotions and the values uh, underneath, and underneath that, and then you come to a very, very clear agreement where there's no doubt about what it, we have agreed to. Right? Exactly. And I think that the higher the quality of the discussion, the more, more likely, actually, because you will get to a point where the asker gets what they want and the giver feels that they've given a promise. I mean, that's the ideal scenario, right? That you can get to the point where both feel completely satisfied. The quality of the conversation is what determines that. And the more time you spend on that conversation, whether it's for something really simple, you know, like my colleague doing the follow-up follow up email saying, was that a promise or an intention that you'll look at that report um, right through to the, the more time you spend on that up front, the, more, the less time you then have to spend on the way through. And yet most organizations put most of their energy on the back end, the consequences, the reward system that you know you think about that's where the energy is as opposed to putting the energy on the front end and those deeper conversations mm. and in some cases it may not be an asker giver it could be you might be co-creating something right you're collaborating to do something within which you might have simultaneously two-way you know, I'm asking for this while I'm giving this and so forth right? and that's right so both people are playing asker and giver even within the same piece of work you mean Yes, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, that, that can also be the case. Mm-hmm. The same principle. In most cases, I find in the, those conversations are easier, I think, in a way, than the ones where the asker is not actually playing an active role in doing, you know, in doing the work. That tends to be where you get more of the us and them, where you end up with, you know, when it goes wrong, the asker, you know, each party blaming the other one more often happens when you've got that you know, they are different roles in a way. But, you know, therefore, you know, what, what, I, what I'm trying to explore is I think there is a role of the asker, both before a promise and after the promise, if that's the moment where you get the handshake, and then there's a role of the giver before and after. And that's what the book covers in pretty straightforward ways. It's one of those, you know, it, it's not a, a tome. <laughs> it's a short to the point. Here's some ways of doing it. But there's much more to it than it first looks. I mean, that's what fascinates me, because as we're starting to talk about now, on the one hand, it's a simple piece. But as we, I think all three of us know, 
we can say simple things, you know, well, what does it take to have that quality of real conversation? Yeah. Takes us into a different, con you know, takes us to another level. Well, I think it also plays, and you mentioned this in the book, that it also plays to the whole idea of trust and building a, a, a level of trust between people and inside an organization. And we often, you know, say that trust is a critical part of a conscious culture, is there has to be high degrees of trust. And I thought it was fascinating that you point out that the, the quality of these dialogues actually leads to people making true commitments, making true promises, which of course then builds trust and builds more trust. So there's this interesting upward spiral that occurs. The more trust there is, the higher the quality of the dialogue we have, the more likely it is we'll make real promises and real commitments. We'll then follow through on them, which builds the trust and, and, and moves up and up. And I mm. love that idea of an upward spiral that comes and over time develops trust. Um, because people sometimes say, you know, well, how do you build trust in an organization? And, and part of it is, you know, one person, one relationship at a time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, reliability is one of the dimensions, isn't it, in the trust equation, competence plus reliability plus intimacy um, divided by self-interest. Uh, so, so, I mean, it certainly hits the reliability element, but I think it also touches on the intimacy element because you're starting to have a real relationship with people on this um, and, and, what the, and a relationship of equals rather than a relationship of, you know, so that I think makes a big difference. It also makes it then when you're at, when things do go wrong and when other circumstances do kick in and, you know, what, what I thought was a promise becomes at risk, that the likelihood of them being able to reopen that conversation in a really constructive way becomes very different you know what are the trade-offs what what might have to be you know is it more important now given that this circumstances has happened you know it's easy to say well covid hit well this hit well the competitor changed their prices well whatever all the justifications we give for why now something can't happen i think if you've got that trust that that real relationship the possibility of then going well given that what might now we be able to do and um, you know, it, it moves people into that ownership space, which, uh, which has a, an impact on, on what then ends up getting delivered. But I think where you're heading, Timothy, and I agree with you, is that not only does it have an impact on that particular deliverable, mm -hmm. but it has an impact on the, on the trust issue. Yeah. And then, Raj, I mean, you, you raised the issue of culture. And if, you know, if we take this broader then and you know the and the definition that that we give on culture is that it is the patterns of behavior that get encouraged and discouraged and tolerated so where this gets really interesting is to say well could can this become a pattern of behavior so can having this kind of conversation become the norm come the pattern of behavior across a whole organization whereupon it becomes a cultural norm to do this mm. And then, of course, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. The option then, the possibility then is that you lift everyone up to that kind of behavior. Then it gets really so I, I wanted to explore that a little more. So uh, zooming out into your uh, span of your work that you've done all these years, what's your general approach towards assessing a culture and then bringing about a transformation in the culture? Uh, I'm familiar with the Barrett approach, you know, the Barrett culture values. Mm, yeah, yeah. So how do you look, come into a culture and evaluate it and then figure out what is the destination point and how do we get there? So we, um, first of all, we make a difference between evaluation and measurement. Uh, I think they're two different things. I mean, in evaluation, we might call it diagnostic. I think there's a piece about really understanding not only what the culture is, but why it is that way. And we found that you need to do qualitative work to understand that you, no matter how good your survey is, you're not going to get to the why certain patterns of behavior are there. So we, I mean, we have qualitative tools, which we particularly use for their measuring change and understanding the difference between different demographic groups. You know, is, the, is this country culture different from that one over there? I mean, that's valuable for, but in terms of really understanding because what we're always looking for, and we do it by inter mostly by interviews and by focus groups, and then by really looking not only at what people say, but also what people don't say, 
uh, because when you ask people, you know, what matters around here, it becomes fascinating what they say and what they don't say. And, you know, we, we count how many times different words get raised and so on. But what we're looking for there is not only what are the patterns of behavior, but also the beliefs that sit underneath those patterns of behavior. So what are the shared beliefs in an organization? So, um, you know, if you want a job done well, do it yourself, for example, might be a belief that is common across a large part of an organization. We find those particularly common in organizations where they've grown up, like, for example, um, mining or, or something like where, 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 the, where the tradition of the organization is people doing things in remote and difficult locations and learning how to make do and fix things themselves. And so almost deeply inherent in the culture is fix it yourself. So if you have that as a belief, then there are patterns of behavior that will sit over the top of that, like not collaborating and reinventing the wheel because I don't trust somebody else to do it for me, et cetera, et cetera, which then becomes the culture. So we're looking for both because if you can get to the, and we're always looking to see if we can expose the beliefs Mm -hmm. Because if you find the beliefs, sometimes when you even just bring them out into the light, people go, oh, yeah, we do have that as a belief. And we hadn't even realized we had it as a belief. And it's probably not useful anymore. Now, some of them are more difficult to shift, but sometimes just even exposing them is a good start. Um, mm. So that will be the diagnostic. Plan. What we're looking for is a, what are the two or three things? We did a piece of work with an organization the other day who'd had a, um, some, some very major problems happened in the organization a couple of years before a real reputational risk issues going on um, and what we found in the diagnostic was that the, the belief the core patterns of belief there was one about infallibility you know we're, we're too big to fail we're you know all that sort of stuff and that hadn't actually changed and it was that infallibility or the arrogance that had actually caused the first problem <laughs> And despite the fact that they'd done all the process improvements and all the things you wouldn't expect to do, they hadn't sifted that belief. And so the chances were that, you know, it was going to happen again. So we're looking for the one or two things that if you pull that, if you can unravel that, it will change. Well, I, that's I'm, the first piece. Didn't sorry, didn't get to the second piece about how, but we'll do that later. Timothy. Well, yeah. that's sort of where I was about to go in a way. Um, but I'm going to ask the how from a different point of view, which is, so many times when I've gotten into questions or discussions about strategy and strategy execution, um, the question of culture comes up and the need to change a culture to fit with a new strategy or a new direction the business is going in. And, um, you know, I wish I had like a, a pound note or a dollar note for every time I've heard, yeah, you know, this is a culture issue as sort of an excuse for why something's not happening or a strategy isn't getting executed. So I'm curious. I mean, everybody wants to have a good cultural change. Nobody starts off saying, okay, we want to really mess up this cultural change. Yet, nonetheless, I'm sure in your experience, not, a, you know, not with your clients, but with the people that aren't your clients, you have observed a lot of efforts that, that haven't really worked out. And I'm curious, what do you look at and see as sort of the, the two or three top mistakes that, that senior leaders are making when they start saying, hey, we've got to have a culture change here. We've got to change our culture in order to, and, you know, it's not like, um, you know, executing a strategy where you sort of say, hey, we got to do these four things. When you go to change yeah. a culture, it's a little bit different. And I'm curious, what are those two or three lessons learned that you've, you've observed? Okay. So maybe three. So the first one would be um, confusing culture with engagement. Mm. So uh, people can be very engaged and the culture can be damaging for your strategy. Uh, either for reputational reasons, I mean, I, but there was no evidence, for example, that Volkswagen employees were not engaged, and yet there was cultural patterns of behavior about, you know, the way that they were reporting emissions, which was a problem. So you can have some measurement and engagement is not a proxy for have I got the right culture for this future strategy. Having said that, if you, if you develop the right strategy over time, then people will become engaged, but, mm -hmm. but that's as a result of. Second thing with round engagement then is, of course, that um, often I think people put a lot of effort into communicating the culture they want, 
and they get people excited about that. And then they say, we've got everybody on board now. And they see that as a proxy for it. So there's a big difference between people being on board with the culture that you want and people having visibly and objectively changed the patterns of behavior and the patterns of thinking that were needed for your new culture. And we're always encouraging, and that would be one. The second piece then would be don't try and change everything. I think it's impossible to change an entire culture. Pick the one or two patterns of behavior that are that you really need for this new culture so, so for this new strategy so you know you have a strategy for example which is going to be about managing global brands with consistency rather than local you know so what you need then is a globally thinking organization who is prepared to adapt global standards and not reinvent them at every local location, even though it might have been better for the individual customer. You know that one, I'm sure. So that required, if, if that was your strategy, you then just focus on that bit of the culture. What is it going to take to change that mindset from local, in a sense, to global? So that would be the second thing, doing too much. And then the third thing, of course, is um, not walking your talk. I mean, not role modeling. That's the one most people would come. So coming out with these great statements, but then genuinely sometimes I think with senior leaders not recognizing that they are not walking the talk. Mm -hmm. So, for example, coming out with a great statement and then hiring a new employee from the outside who represents everything that you said you no longer value. You know, I mean, so you say you want to become customer centric, you then hire somebody who is an amazing salesperson, but doesn't really care about the customer and will sell whatever product they need to, to get, you know, the next, to get to meet the numbers in this month. Yeah. So it's the, it's the decisions, the symbols that people, that leaders make, which, and we find a lot of our role is actually holding up the mirror. Mm. You know, our teams observe ordinary meetings, hold up the mirror and say, you said you wanted this, but in this meeting, there were five examples where you did the opposite of that. And that yeah. will go up. People go out and talk about it. Yeah. So they're not serious. They think you're not serious. Well, I, I want to draw a funny parallel here. Well, I mean, it's not a funny parallel, but um, I want to draw a parallel here between when people come to me and they sort of say, listen, um, I want to get involved in a leadership development program and, and I want to be a great leader. And, you know, I sort of say, well, you know, let's talk about what a quote unquote great leader is, but let's also talk about where you are at <laughs> and how you can be a little bit better. So I never make the promise or I try to make sure the organization I'm with never makes the promise that we're going to create great leaders. We're going to make the leaders we've got be a little bit better. And I bring this up in the context of cultures and sort of people saying, hey, I want a great place to work kind of culture. And the culture being where it is right now <laughs> and your view. And, and how do you talk with a client when a client comes and says, I want to have a great culture. And you're sitting there going, hmm, let me see. My initial observations <laughs> is that you're over here. <laughs> how do I break this to you gently? Um, or, or how do you handle that kind of dialogue around? I want a great culture. Like, like who doesn't want a great culture? Well, given, given how much it actually takes to change a culture, and that I think is a, an emerging understanding, people, organizations invest hundreds of millions of dollars in changing the patterns of behavior in their customers, but they're unwilling to invest in what it actually takes, how much it actually takes to change the patterns of thinking and behavior in their employees. And yet we're talking about the same thing. It's a curious there's a belief that, so given that it really is a serious investment, uh, I find that it, it's, it's a better option to link it, not just to we want a great culture because therefore everybody will want to work for us, although that is one of the outcomes, but sure. to link it, as you said before, about we want a great culture because it will implement, it will help us implement our strategy. Mm. So that would be the first thing that I would suggest. And then, you know, define great. I mean, there are, there are without doubt, a couple of elements that can make it a great place to work. But then, you know, Raj was talking before about, you know, organizations that are nice places to work but are not successful. So, you know, the people who are happy with a in that nice place to work might mm. not be happy in another organization that is more hard-nosed and more performance-orientated. Other people might be. 
So you can judge a culture, I think, by who it's ejecting, who's mm. choosing to leave and who is being asked to leave tells you a lot about what is valued. So you really want a fit for purpose culture, mm. which is a bit different. As you say that, I mean, so one of the things that we've struggled with is people, you know, we talk in conscious capitalism that one of our four pillars is, of course, having a conscious culture. And um, in the book that Raj and I co-authored, you know, we said uh, that we, we don't know about the values. You know, there's a question about which values you want to, but the outcome that we want or that we defined um, we used, uh, Raj is always really good with coming up with these little phrases. So he came up with the phrase tactile. We want trust, authenticity, caring, transparency, integrity, learning, and empowerment as sort of, these are outcomes of a conscious culture. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, do you in your mind somewhere have an idea about what a, a really conscious culture looks like to you as sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, a place where you'd ideally like to see companies moving towards? Well, I, um, I tend to start with the word conscious. Mm. So for me, being conscious means being awake or aware and able to watch. There's an element of yourself witnessing, if you like, that is, is able to watch yourself behave mm -hmm. and potentially then choose a different behavior, either during, before, or even after for next time, <laughs> but being sufficiently conscious that you can see your own patterns of behavior and you can see your own contribution to mm -hmm. a dynamic with somebody else, you know, a conflict or whatever. And so, and, and you know, that, you know, my background originally was in the consciousness movement in, the, in, the, in my early life when I used to teach meditation. You know, we were, we were looking at the levels of adult development, as it's now referred to then was called levels of consciousness. Uh, and, and, you know, what does that mean? So, so if you think about all the things we're talking about, you know, picking any one of those authenticity, transparency, you know, learning, let's take learning, for example, to be a, to, to be a learner. Mm. requires humility it requires curiosity it requires the admission that i'm not always right mm. and if you then think about some of those more um conventional pre-conventional type mental patterns of thinking which are about the world is against me i have to defend myself i've always got to look good if if i have that as a pattern of thinking as a, as a world view which mm. is unless i always look good someone's going to come and usurp me mm. then it's going to be very difficult for me to become a learner because becoming a learner would have to admit making mistakes not being perfect humble and so on so that's how i see consciousness is is the is the state of development of the, of the human being that is required to move towards those seven things that you have there or, any, or many others as well, mm. because there are so many patterns, you know, you talk, um, or so many other patterns of behavior that are that come from a defensive mechanism uh, and that limited worldview. And unless one can shift that, and that's where I get excited about, is it possible to in fact accelerate human development in the name of developing the right culture, in the name of developing more conscious organizations and a better world. Well, you know, Carolyn, that raises the issue around uh, different subcultures that exist within organizations, uh, typically a big divide between the blue collar and white collar parts of the organization, the full-time college educated managerial part of the company and then the people who are actually doing the work at the front lines, whether it's a factory or whether it's a service establishment or whatever it might be. And we found dramatic differences between levels of engagement, levels of uh, sense of purpose, uh, being cared for, get, giving an, uh, having an opportunity to grow and develop and evolve. Uh, that there's a kind of caste system that exists in many companies. Uh, what, what has been your observation about that? And uh, how do you think we can... We can that. Uh, I'd love to have a longer conversation about, about what differences you found, because my, 
I mean, what I, what I have found has been that human beings in the end are human beings. Mm. So I think there are certain traits such as the need to look good, uh, the need to be in control, uh, just as a, as a couple, the, the, the need for relationship, the need to feel wanted, uh, you know, which I think are universal. Uh, I think they play out differently to some extent in different roles in blue collar. So I'm so we would say blue collar, but, but senior or less senior, certainly. But I, I don't find the human being as being different. So I don't, for example, we haven't found mm. less interest in when given the opportunity, we have found the same level of desire or, or openness to the possibility of becoming more conscious based on that definition I gave before at any level of the organization. And sometimes actually in more senior levels, there mm -hmm. is more to lose. And mm -hmm. so actually the journey is more difficult. So I don't know if that's your experience, Raj. So in, in some respects, it's harder to work with more senior leaders than it is to work with people. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's very different. You've got to be much more practical. You can't waffle on with great long theories and concepts. And, you know, there's all that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I grew up in Australia where they definitely called a spade a spade <laughs> if you started to do any of that rubbish. Um, however, when you got past that and you got all well, the practicalities, I, I have found both to be highly open, but fascinating in your view on that. Well, no, I agree with you. People are people and they happen to be playing different roles. I think it's from the other side. Most organizations do not prioritize that. And they, they only uh, make available these kinds of uh, opportunities to certain people. So the book that I wrote called Everybody Matters, the title itself tells you it really started with Everybody Matters. It, it's people at the shop floor in the manufacturing company, right? And, and, uh, and that's an exception, I believe, to the norm. In many other companies, some people matter. You know, we say these are the high potentials, right? And they're going to get all these opportunities. Or in our programs only go to a certain level within the organization and we really don't pay attention. So the rest of the people are simply doers and we just tell them what to do and we don't really care much yeah, more. Yeah. And that's the divide that I'm looking to see. How do we do and, and I think that goes then to the investment. Actually, funnily enough, back to the investment piece I was saying before, because, because you know, there is a skill involved, I think, in helping an individual to grow. Uh, and and to and to and to develop from the point of view of adult development and you know developing a sense of uh, developing from that level of consciousness and expanding their worldview that is not something that you can put you know somebody who has been running safety training for ten years in and say okay put people through a program and they're going to you know the, it is a skilled profession mm -hmm. and to be honest because we're searching for people all the time who can do it there are not that many people who are able to do that work. And so I think our, our, our limitation is how do you, on the assumption that it is possible, which I am now completely convinced that it is possible that people who were completely defensive can open up to other possibilities with the right interventions. And obviously, in our case, the interventions cost money. Mm. Now, if you say it gets very expensive to do that kind of intervention right through an organization, you know, and I was saying before about how much are people prepared to invest compared to what they would invest in, um, you know, changing the behavior of their customers. And you go, okay, how, how do we, and I won't say, because I think all three of us are in this same game. How do we train enough people who can, who can do that work? Because if we could, if there were enough people who knew how to do that work and take it deeply into organizations, whether they were external consultants or internal HR people or whatever they happen to be at, at a price that could be afforded, I, I genuinely think that we could create transformations, not only in organizations, but frankly, in the world. I mean, I would like to see that same work being done in schools and universities. And, you know, it, it is a body of work and it is. Mm chronically undervalued relative to the academic sphere or the technical sphere of development. It's changing now, but nowhere near fast enough. And, and the other question is whether or not one can take people to those kind of places if you haven't been there yourself. Mm. So, for example, we teach something about, um, we call it above and below the line. It's about whether you blame other people or whether you take responsibility. If you're living a life of blame, you can't teach that work. You can't. 
because when people go into wonderful justifications about why everything is um has got to stay the way that it is and it's not their fault anyway you don't hear it for what it is which mm -hmm. is a mental model which is being applied to the world and so you can't call someone on it you can't help someone through it so i think that's a, a challenge we've all got to face I want to build on that a little bit. I mean, we've had uh, been blessed by having a couple of wonderful speakers recently on our show talking about, you know, living wages, talking about the fact that, you know, two thirds of American workers have less than, you know, a thousand dollars in savings. And when you're when you're talking about those kind of numbers um, and you're talking about consciousness and you go to your really go to your frontline people, you know, they're on this this thin line between survival and, you know, just making a living. And then we get into a, a sort of a higher order of, are you doing meaningful work? Do you feel cared for? Are you making commitments? And, and it seems to me that part of my own bias, I think many of practitioners bias is that we're, we're biased towards those white collar workers and trying to make the culture better with them and forgetting that for some of the real frontline people, they're coming at it from a point of view where they're on a knife's edge sometimes around yeah. <laughs> this whole idea of feeling economically safe in the world. Um, and nice. so, you know, looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're, I was you're, just about to say Maslow. <laughs> you're, you're, at, you're at a very different level. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about how that plays out in culture change in, in your world. Mm. Uh, Maslow was what came to mind there. You know, is, is it possible to even consider these things when you are in a fear that is driven by you know, economic mm. reality as opposed to a fear of you know, some of the other fears that I was talking about before? And you know, we all know when we are highly stressed or very ill or any, any, any of those conditions which put mm. us under stress, how hard it is to then be able to step back and see a different, you know, to see a, a bigger solution, to be able to step and have that helicopter view sometimes. So it is extremely difficult when you're in that situation. And I, I mean, there's a couple of ways that I would take this in, in a, in an ideal world, the, the belief forming the belief that the, the most, one of the most damaging things I think is the belief that I can't lose my job. Mm. because when I feel I can't lose my job, then a lot of these patterns that we've been talking about over the last little while, you know, I, I, I don't, I have to please the boss. I can't afford to say no. I, or I feel like I would say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when someone is in that position, whether it is possible to, to reach the point where I go, I know I'd be okay mm. when, you know, all the evidence is saying maybe I wouldn't be okay mm. is not an easy place to get to. Now I, I have absolutely worked with people who have got to that place of say, I know I will be okay. And guess what? Most people actually are okay when the worst happens, but one doesn't know that that's going to happen. And what okay means is got, you know, so, so you're, you're stepping on, the most delicate place in terms of then saying to people, can you find that place inside where it would be okay? And I, it, it's almost I, like, I almost don't dare say it because mm. it's almost like such, it sounds like an uncaring thing to say. And yet it's, it's, it is also liberating. So we go there a little way mm. and we also go on the more practical level on a lot of the, what we're working with here, then a lot of the techniques we're showing people will actually help them to become better at doing their job. So mm. we were talking accountability before, you know, if I, if I get better at being 100% reliable and always just doing what I said I will do, that, is, that means I am more likely to keep my job if mm. there were a situation where jobs were going to be lost. So you know, some of it is, I mean, we, we've gone to several levels here, but at the most practical level, I would try there. Mm. Well, Carolyn, you mentioned that you uh, grew up in Australia. I would love to learn more about your journey and how you came to do the work that you do. Did you have some awakenings along the way? Were there some epiphanies, some uh, turning points in your life? Share a little bit of your journey with the life story with us. Huh? Big epiphanies, <laughs> major journey points indeed, yes. I actually grew up in England. 
uh, and I, um, as a young adult with small children, I had my children very young, uh, the, my first work was teaching meditation. I got involved in the Transcendental Meditation Organization way back, you know, like way back, uh, the, the back end of the hippies, and um, ended up running a meditation organization in the UK where we used to have thousands of people and, and a guru, and you know, we did the whole meditation piece. And what, then, what, uh, drew you, what drew you to that? Just back up a little. Oh, bit. you know, one of those completely random things. You know, a neighbor who was doing it and said, "Come along one evening." I, I can't, I can't, I can't pretend to be anything more profound than that. But then, of course, having done it, uh, you know, profound Im impact on a whole range of different things: health, um, well-being. You know, I'm, I'm sure that you, know, you and many readers will know of those. So, so I became a very rapid convert. And um, back then, uh, you know, it, what, the, 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 there was a lot of research going on on the impact the meditation had on the whole range of benefits. And so I got heavily involved in that. And I was actually flown out to Australia by a couple called Walter and Gita Bellin, uh, who had run this meditation organization I was in, and they were starting something in Australia. I went over there. They were looking for people who were able to stand in front of large groups and teach, which I'd by this stage discovered I could do. I was in my 20s then. Um, and then worked with them for a couple of years. They had then done some of the work on personal development, the work that was coming out of California on personal development, Werner Earhart and so on. And they put together um, a combination of meditation and personal development. So we had long arguments about was meditation enough or did you actually really have to look at the patterns of behavior and the patterns of thinking and came to the conclusion you did. So we used to run amazing courses for people in personal development. And then um, I, I became so convinced that this work was of value. I felt that people who, were, who came and spent $500 to come for a weekend, in a sense, were already halfway there. And I wanted to reach people who would never do a course like that. I mean, the sort of people you were talking about, we were talking about before, you know, just ordinary people with difficult lives and not much money and an ordinary job. And, and it just felt like that sort of stuff wouldn't be exposed to them. And so I remember we sat down one day and said, how could we do that? How could we reach, how can we take this incredibly valuable information and insight and transformation of people that we had seen to a much larger group? And we, we said it would have to be either through education system or through business. And somebody had been on one of the programs who ran an advertising agency. We went to talk to him. We said, this is what we were thinking of doing. This is my husband and I. And he said, oh, why don't you come and work for our agency? And we could, you know, have a thing, which was the external promise of the brand, the internal promise of, you know, what we later call culture at that stage. We weren't calling it culture. People didn't even have values in those days. We called the company corporate vision. Vision and corporate weren't words that were combined and people, corporates didn't have visions in those days. And we started from there. So it was you know, partly serendipity, partly a belief that it was, this work matters. And we learned so much, obviously, in the corporate world. We learned that when people haven't chosen and paid to come on a program, you don't have the same permission as when they have. Um, but you know, this was a long time ago now, 30 years ago, and I've been doing it ever since, and we were hugely successful. And the woman who actually um, uh, brought me out to Australia, Gita Bell, and then later on worked with Michael Rennie, uh, who started when, when McKinsey got into some of this work, she went to work uh, for McKinsey to do that work. So you know, we were involved in the very, very early days, and McKinsey actually poached a few of the people who we had in our organization to start their work back in the 90s, which started in Australia. And it kind of went from there. And then I read my book, and, and that took me back globally, and it's just been a lifetime's mission. Mm. I know a guy named Rob Malik from Australia. He was oh, I know Rob, yes. Kind of work, so I, can't imagine <laughs> I know Rob, yeah, he was in the McKinsey piece, yeah. I, I um. Um, so yeah, and then what I realized is that there is a, there is a, there are so many people across the world who are seeking to help on this level now. And like I said before, I mean, transformational facilitators, whatever we want to call ourselves, mm. uh, in in organizations, out of organizations, writing, you know, doing, we're all doing, we're all trying. I think I th and I am confident. I am quietly confident 
that the result of the work that is happening with all of us is over time going to change the, the patterns of behavior in society. Now, I know sometimes it feels like we go backwards, mm. you know, and you, you can see sort of the opposite happening, but I guess I am an optimist. Mm. And I mean, if I think in the corporate world, when I started off and, you know, the, the behaviors that you saw then compared to where we are now, it, you know, it's only been what, 25, 25, 30 years. I mean, you know, you probably have some of those early experience. It's happening. I think it's happening really fast. Uh, although I know other people don't think it's happening fast enough. But I remember standing up, facilitating in front of groups. You know, usually I was the only woman, of course. But also everyone had, um, you know, an ashtray and packets of cigarettes around them. And, you know, I would be smoking from the front. And I mean... <laughs> Life's changed, you um, in, in, in know, in my lifetime. So I, I feel, you know, for a long time, I was the only woman amongst men. That's, so it's, I am encouraged as to where we're heading. Yeah, so I wanted to just go further on that. So looking at the bigger picture of the world of uh, capitalism and business generally and philosophy around that, uh, our movement, uh, stakeholder capitalism, includes all of these various conversations that are happening <clears throat> do you feel encouraged about where we are headed <clears throat> in the future because you've got that on the one hand and then you have all these anti-capitalist populist movements uprisings you know flirtations with socialism and so forth happening on the other side and and i think maybe that's a warning signal that unless we reform society could go down a very dark pathway so overall do you feel encouraged about that do you think we're going to change rapidly enough in the right directions i am um... I focus my work on the change at the individual level. Um, so I, I, I won't comment on the political scene, but what I, I will, I guess what I will comment on is the, I mean, if I think about something, for example, like, like sustainability and the environment, the, the need to think longer term, I mean, we were talking before about self-interest. We go back to human beings or human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the worldview that is needed to think beyond what's going to happen next week and whether that is in, in, from a shareholder capital, you know, making this quarter's profit or whether it's a, you know, decisions that we're going to make about whether we're going to pollute for the next generation. Both of those require the ability to have a longer-term view and to think on behalf of mm. the next generation as well as our own or even, you know, even five years out from an organizational perspective, I've always found it so much easier to work with privately owned organizations because they instinctively are able to think longer term. So I, I do believe that it may be that, that the kind of crises that we're hitting will force more of that thinking. That may happen. It may not happen. If it doesn't happen, we probably will all end up in a bad way. But, but that's why I link it to being conscious because I think being conscious, one of the definitions of, you know, the, 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 the more developed worldview is the ability to think longer term and the ability to see patterns that go beyond my own self-interest. So I think one has to start by trying to put those kind of leaders in place. Mm. But, you know, they may not all get elected and we, we all know that that doesn't always happen. So I might be wrong. We may not make it. Well, I think that you've raised a number of very interesting points, Carolyn, and one of them that comes back to this, um, if you're thinking longer term, then you're much more likely to invest in your people as a critical capability inside the organization. And I think that it goes to a point that, um, you know, frankly, our accounting systems today view people as costs, and we're not capturing the idea that this is a capability, this is a an important asset within the organization. And we ought to invest in this asset to make sure. And I don't like that word to call people assets, but with the mind frame of, you know, costs versus investment, you know, if you have more of that long-term point of view, then I think you're in the end much more likely to make those kind of investments into your people uh, and therefore start to create the kind of organization that we're all talking about and, and hoping for here. Like, wouldn't it be amazing, uh, just to add to that before we, you respond, Kellen, like what if we took 10% of the hours that our people spend with us out of 40 hours, we just take four hours. And those four hours are devoted to personal growth and personal development and you know, learning how to be a more effective 
not only human uh, at work, but also everything that we do helps you in your personal life as well. So it's just shifting a little bit of that time, right? And then enabling people to uh, in, invest in that, uh, in that kind of development and growth. I mean, I can imagine the returns from that would be extraordinary. Oh, and you're both bringing up so many points, I don't even know where to start as well. This is a fantastic conversation because where I'm, I mean, I would go beyond even investing in our people, Timothy, I would say we have to invest in our culture. Now, you would expect me to say that. But, but the reason I say that is because I'm not certain that believing that we should hold on to our people in this organization is actually mm. the right mm. outcome. So if you move to the possibility that people want to move around, then the reason culture matters is, is if, you, if you build the right culture, then you can bring mm. anybody into it and they immediately lift up to the level of that culture. Mm. So the culture is actually even bigger than investing in the people because if you invest in the people only, Mm -hmm. then the people move on and then the new people come in. But if you invest in the culture, so you have certain patterns of thinking and behavior within the norm in the organization, then you don't mind so much that your people move on. Yeah. You allow them, you, you welcome the fact that they want to move on, not because you were a bad place to work, but because that maybe is the way of the future. That's the way that we all think. So that would be one thing I would say there, but absolutely, if we invested in, in this and, and you know, part of investing in the culture, of course, is investing in your people. So it's not like the two are separate. Right. But there are a few additional things you have to do to invest in a culture, which is beyond just investing in each individual. And mm. one of them, actually, Timothy, you know, where you go to, we have to change the accounting system. I mean, so we look at when we look at culture. And Raj, you asked me this question a long way back, and I didn't answer it. But but how do you then go about changing culture? We look at the behaviours the symbols and the systems, which all send messages of how, how people are expected to behave. I think we've talked a lot about the behavior. So I look at my role modeling, I'm seeing how everyone else is behaving. We talked a little bit about symbols in terms of the decisions I make, who I recruit, how much time we, I mean, a symbol would be 10, putting 10% of a people investing on people would be a symbol that we really did care. Mm. But the other one is the systems, which is where you were moving to, Timothy, which is you know, in order to create different behavior, we need to start measuring different things. We need to account for things differently. We need to reward things differently. So the, the, all the financial systems and the HR systems in particular, probably the CFO and the CHO, I think, have an, CHRO have an equal impact on culture in terms of the, of the systems. And I would that's true of society as well as true of an organization. Normally, we find that once the owners of the systems really get the extent mm. to which their system is shaping the behavior and the thinking, which they all are, um, and when they choose to change those systems, I don't have the expertise on how you change those systems, but when they choose to say, okay, I'm now going to change, I mean, just even in a really simple one, you can be, you know, you measure product profitability and you change that to start measuring lifetime customer profitability you mm. are going to shape different behaviors i mean that's even at a you know product versus customer that's not even going to a higher level of culture it's just a different culture so the same would be i mean i don't know the answer what would what sort of an accounting system would you need to measure what what sort of mm. you know i mean people are doing that thinking i i don't have the answer but i know people are doing that thinking and it needs to be done so behaviors symbols and systems you've got to tackle all three when you want to change culture. Carolyn, thank you for uh, your wisdom and your plethora of examples and knowledge you brought to the table today. I love the way you just summarized it in terms of, uh, you know, the behaviors, the role modeling and the systems um, really being critically important to being able to make these things work. So thank you for your presence today. We really appreciated it. Thank you. It was great to be with you both. And for you, our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then whatever channel you're listening on, please hit the subscription button. And if you feel so moved, please go over to the Apple podcast or to Spotify and, you know, leave us a rating and leave us some notes if you, if you enjoyed it. And if you want to leave a message for Raj and I, please go to our website, theconsciouscapitalists.com. And we have a area on the website where you can leave us a message. 
And Raj, if people want to know more about conscious capitalism, where can they go for that? Well, they can certainly go to our book, uh, The Field Guide, Conscious Capitalism Field Guide, other books that we have on the subject, and ConsciousCapitalism.org, which is the website for the nonprofit that is shepherding this movement. And we have chapters in about 20 countries and 40 or so U.S. cities. So you may find a community nearby or you can eventually start one uh, on your own. And Carolyn, if they want to know more about you and the work that you're doing, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and walk the talk? Well, the company's called walkingthetalk.com. So that's where we do our work on changing culture. If you'd like to buy the book, uh, Walking, um, Walking Your Talk, the original book on culture, or my new book, Accountability at Work, they're on Amazon. They're everywhere now. If you want to buy larger numbers for your teams, uh, let us know. We can probably do a bulk book buy for you. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, listeners. Until next week, we'll see you then.